Hello, this is Carol Walton. I'm an author and broadcaster and contributing editor at Vogue magazine. And I have a podcast called If Jules Could Talk. And Susie Minkes has very kindly allowed me to share a recent episode of mine with you, which features an interview I did with Susie herself on the subject of the coronation jewels and her book, The Royal Jewels. Susie's at her informative and entertaining best. She spent a couple of years with people at Buckingham Palace looking at all the jewellery and doing her research. And we both thought we might like to hear it in time for the coronation of King Charles III. I very much hope you enjoy it. And if you'd like to hear further episodes of mine, please search for If Jewels Could Talk wherever you get your podcasts and join me. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. I think people want a show, but not one which is about money and extraordinary expense and overgrandisement, but just things of beauty. I think nobody's going to argue that beauty should be a significant part of this event. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I am very delighted this morning that we have the world's most renowned fashion journalist with us, the great Susie Menkes, whose knowledge about fashion as well as jewellery, with her decades of experience, makes her the perfect person for us to talk about royal jewels, not least because Susie, as well as being a prolific journalist, is the author of several books on fashion and jewellery and the definitive book called The Royal Jewels, which we'll talk about a little later. And she has 700,000 followers on her Instagram account. And as Stephen Jones, the milliner, says, Susie is fashion. She is the benchmark by which all others are judged. Few come close in authority, experience, judgment and hairdo for her her renowned hair role is a sort of fearsome sight for many fashion designers over the years. Once they see that, they know they're going to be judged with great intellectual rigour and written about. So Susie, thank you very much for joining us today. I love this introduction, especially the part about my hair. (laughs) And um, I loved what you posted the other day, a picture of yourself, just as um, Dame Mary Quant had died, wearing a mini skirt and very snazzy white boots as you were the first female editor of the Varsity newspaper at Cambridge. Yes, it's extraordinary thinking back to that era. But I do think that there are moments with fashion and also with jewellery when what is being seen reflects absolutely what's going on in the world. And of course, we never see it at the time. You only see it afterwards and understand it afterwards. But it is interesting. And I certainly was fascinated to think of this short skirt, which I mean, is nothing now. But um, I remember my mother being very dubious about the idea that I was showing so much leg. And I'm sure mothers all over the world said the same thing. (laughs) 
And I think the fact that you were editing, that you're the first female editor of the Varsity newspaper. And I think that when you, you came into fashion, and I think you can be credited with the first woman who looked at fashion with this intellectual thought process behind it. I'm sure that many people have looked seriously at jewellery and what it stands for and clothes and what it stands for. But I think that in a way the jewellery is more interesting because it lasts. I mean, maybe it's because we had a queen who lived and stayed with us for so long, but it's extraordinary how jewellery that was made in the 1920s is still pulled out and worn now. And I don't think that there are many other things you can say that about. And even my clothes that we just talked about from the um, 1960s, well, you can't find them now. And if you did, they'd be tatty and nobody would want to wear them, maybe. Whereas jewellery can look as fresh as the day it was made. But what we want to talk to you today, we want to plug this sort of information that you have accrued over many years to write the book Royal Jewels. And firstly, I wanted a little historic background to where all these sumptuous jewels came from and how they came into the royal family. If you ask me to say one word to describe the attitude of the uh, members of the royal family and people who work for them, as one rarely speaks to the actual people themselves, I would say that the word that summed it all up is vague. If you actually ask people where jewellery came from when they first saw it, and they say, yes, now that's such a good question. When was it? It was certainly, yes. I remember, and then it would go off into a flow of words which meant absolutely nothing. Somebody somewhere must have a list of when the jewels came into the family. They must have it, but I don't know who it is. I don't know whether this is passed on from generation to generation. And I, I don't think anybody does. I think it's one of these strange secrets. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I suppose some, we know that Queen Mary loved jewellery. We know that there are certain things that are passed down, but... I guess, as you're saying, that there is no definitive note with each thing as to where it came and how it came into the family. There might be. Somebody might mm. have done all this, but I have not seen it, and I haven't seen it um, in somebody write, writing about it, a journalist who has seen these words. So it is very much something that's not discussed. And in a way, I can see why, because some of the pieces are dubious, really, the origin. They came from India, um, and they I wouldn't say they were stolen, but they were perhaps given and and taken by the British royal family, and in a way, they were—they weren't stealing it. That is quite the wrong word to use. But they were taking over at that time a country in which they found jewels an attractive thing to take with them to go back to England. And I suppose they were gifted. I mean, they people wanted to please the monarch at the time, and would give sort of these great sumptuous gifts to them. But were they giving them to the crown or were they giving them to the person who represented the crown? Well, that, of course, is the big question. And I think it's hard to understand how different people felt about it. I think the Queen herself was sort of impeccable. She basically wore the jewellery, making you feel that perhaps she would rather um, be with her horses riding along than she was going to some sumptuous dinner with fabulous jewels. There wasn't a sense with her, as there is with other people, that there's something about jewellery which really lifts the heart and the soul and is something fascinating. So she was a great keeper of it. She was also very kind of respectful, wasn't she, of remembering where she was given particular gifts 
and she's warned them when she revisits the country or the president or if there's a state banquet and she's honouring that country, she would wear those pieces, wouldn't she? Yes, definitely. And probably that's the only time she'd wear them because we don't often see the Queen wearing things that we're not used to. And I don't know what she's passed on to the next generation. I mean, that, that's interesting because um, Camilla absolutely loves jewellery. And um, she wears a great deal of it, and she has worn and chosen many pieces that are quite dramatic, I would describe them as, and a lot of diamonds flashing around. And um, that is quite different from other members of the family who don't really seem to be so interested. But, I mean, it was ever thus. Don't we know this in our own families, in our own friends? Some people are crazy for jewellery, and some really prefer the horses. (laughs) It's very difficult to sort out the idea of the hereditary principle of royal jewels. The um, crown jewels are definitely left in perpetuity, I think that's the word, um, to future monarchs. Okay, but how does it work when the monarch dies? I mean, this is where it's what's happening at the moment. So could the Queen leave certain pieces privately in her will to family members? I think people have spotted Princess Anne um, wearing a jewel that's been worn before by her mother. But nothing is ever said about this. Maybe they talk among themselves within the palace. But I certainly have never seen a single piece written by anybody who really talked on the subject of whether jewels were owned by the nation, whether they were owned privately, when they came into the royal world. It's very mysterious, I would say. And um, I always love that um, line of um, Queen Elizabeth's sister when she was very, very young. And um, Princess Margaret loved jewellery and all sorts of things. And then when she was told by her sister that she couldn't have one of the pieces of jewellery she wanted, she turned round furiously and said, but it's yours and mine. And I always mm. sticks in my head those words because I, <laughs> I think that that's probably the attitude that the um, entire royal family has. Yes. And I suppose that's why we've seen certain royal jewels come up at auction, because when they're left in um, a monarch's will to another part of the family and they go down through another line of the family and then eventually they come up at auction. Maybe what should happen, Susie, what do you think, is that in the will, for instance, something should be left to a son or daughter for their lifetime and then given back to the royal collection. Well, it sounds a great idea and maybe they do it. What I'm saying right the way through this conversation with you is that we don't know. We just don't know. And in fact... There was a um, an article in the Guardian newspaper literally last week addressing this very subject, saying how many important royal jewels that we are used to seeing Queen Elizabeth wearing, that we saw Queen Elizabeth wearing, that are not actually in the royal collection. And one of them, I was amazed, was the Williamson Pink Floral Bridge, because the Queen was given by a mine owner in 1947 in um, Tanzania a magnificent magnificent, one of the world's greatest pink diamonds that then was commissioned in by, they commissioned Cartier to make a sort of daisy brooch with the Williamson pink in the centre, which she wore a lot. And apparently that is not in the Royal Collection. Well, that's it. It's all so vague. There's definitely a difference between um, different jewellery within the firm. So there's the grand royal pieces given through the ages as historical and special. 
And then there are the personal pieces within the family. The latter would be, for example, gifts from Queen Victoria to her many children. But I don't know whether anybody has really divided it all up and produced formal lists. Um, there was a period at the beginning of the new millennium when it seemed that there was some sorting out of what was for members of the royal family, what definitely went into a particular area. But it's certainly, I had the impression that people always want to keep quiet, particularly about gifts that had come from Indian potentates, for example. And it's just as difficult, really, to um, justify today whether these things should still be kept in England, whether they should be returned to museums in India itself. And of course, it's not just India. There have been gifts from all sorts of people around the world. So to me, it's all a grey area. But this, I think, is because nobody has wanted to speak out from the palace about exactly how they have chosen to put things and where they've put them and in which category. So, Susie, what do you think that we can expect to see at the coronation I mean, I think it's going to be a very different coronation to the late Queen's. But do you think we'll see many of her jewels there worn? It's so interesting. I'm longing to see it. Because, you know, Camilla, especially now that she's been given the full title from Queen Consort to Queen, she may now put aside some of the large and quite fancy jewels that she was given via Charles, her husband. Certainly, there was this collection of jewellery that's never really been discussed um, from Margaret Greville. And she was somebody who sort of, um, an intelligent woman, but sort of hang about the royal family. And she gave to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, an enormous collection of jewellery and jewellery that really, you know, you gasp at, mostly not so much from the stones, but from the way that it's presented. And um, it's so interesting to know what's going to happen now, because now that um, Camilla has got access, I would say, to some of the most amazing jewels that have ever been seen. It seems unlikely that she will then wear with them pieces that were given to the Queen Mother. So there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of things to see. And, um, you know, for the big day, the choice is quite difficult because I would say that the passing of Queen Elizabeth herself is too recent to bestow her favourite jewels on her son's second wife. I mean, God forbid that Diana's favourite tiara is worn by Camilla. That's not going to happen, I'm sure. The lover's not. Yes. The lover's not tiara, yes. She did show real potential, Diana, didn't she, for wearing things in a fun way, a different way. I mean, she's definitely set a fashion, and that's hard to say about every royal woman. Not every royal woman has set a definitive fashion. I think Princess Diana was exceptional because she so obviously enjoyed jewellery. Perhaps showing off a little when you're dancing with John Travolta is not surprising, but the idea that she was brave enough to tie some priceless piece of jewellery right in her head and then go dancing with it, I think people love that. To be too solemn and to be wearing things too much in a religious way, is not really what people want. The jewellery should be something filled with light, maybe colour, but certainly that element of, do we mean fun or just a gorgeousness, that's what people are looking for, I think. I don't know what are the rules of which jewellery can be worn by which person. I mean, we now have a new, not queen consort, we now have a new queen, so presumably she has first opportunity to look at the jewels. But we would imagine that the next in line... Um, to the throne's wife would be something that was very special. So will we see Catherine wearing jewellery that is more dramatic, that is more personal to her? I don't know. I can't help feeling with things of beauty 
that you either love it or you don't. You either feel that tingling in your heart or you just think of jewellery as something to be attractive and fit well with your dress. I think there must be a pecking order. I think certain members of the royal family have to earn the right to wear certain tiaras, like they have to earn the right to wear the Queen's honours that she gives out. So maybe there is a pecking order that when you've done 15, 5 years, 10 years, it's almost like reaching an anniversary. Okay, now you get to wear the Greville tiara. Now you can wear the lover's knot. Now you can wear this one. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I love that idea, but I, I don't know if it's true. And certainly I know I was given much more access than you'll get today to um, either see, but mostly see as pictures, the um, jewellery. And it's extraordinary, the sheer number. And, you know, these are the ones they showed me. This isn't a tie-up of absolutely everything that's sitting there for people to try on. There were 13 tiaras, and I mean tiaras that leave you gasping. Also, there were masses of necklaces. I remember counting, I think it was 75 or 73. A lot of them were gifts from... South Africa, but there were also gifts from Saudi Arabia and from Nizam of Hyderabad and so many more brooches after the other pieces. There was Queen Victoria's marriage gifts and earrings and bracelets and watches and rings. I mean, shall I stop? Because otherwise we'll spend the whole day <laughs> talking about it. Susie, where did you go to do that research? Were you in the Royal Collection Trust? Where were you to do that research? As a matter of fact, I was shown most of these things by people who worked for the Queen and who were much older than I was and who were probably coming to the end of their careers and were pleased to find somebody who was interested in it all. Remember, I didn't come as a journalist. I was doing a book, which, although it wasn't approved exactly by the um, royal family. It certainly wasn't, you know, a word didn't go out saying don't go anywhere near Susie Menkes. Mm -hmm. So these um, people who worked with jewellery and were so proud of their work they did and so proud of what they had, they were the ones that I spoke to. I never got anybody from the royal family to say anything meaningful about jewellery. I mean, one wouldn't really, with the higher members of the family, the last thing you would do when you saw the Queen for the first time or the third time, you wouldn't say, Mom, I love your bracelet, tell me about it. I mean, that's not the way things are handled. And yet, there were quite a lot of people who talked about it or knew about it. But I keep on using the word vague, because that is how I would describe members of the royal family, or more to the point, people who worked for the royal family. Vague, no clarity as to which jewels were going to be passed on, perhaps to Princess Anne, which jewels were going to be quietly and subtly sent back to the country that they came from. No discussions of any kind. What's quite interesting, actually, to confirm that fact, Susie, is that in your book, and you say, you just said now that you saw 13 dazzling tiaras, I have had the deputy surveyor of the Queen's works of art and jewellery on the podcast, and I asked her the question, how many tiaras are there? And she said, I'm really sorry, but I can't answer that question. I don't know. Well, I'm not surprised. It all goes back to the words of Princess Margaret when she said, it's yours and mine. Nobody really seems to divide what is part of the country, part of the crown, and what is part of a normal family with money to spend to produce pretty things for members of their family to wear. So in fact, we could be really surprised on Coronation Day. Maybe there are a few tiaras that nobody even knows about, locked away, that might suddenly 
appear at the coronation. I very much doubt there'll be surprises at the coronation because I'm sure they will want to have a sense of solidity, of knowledge that this is part of the history of the country and suddenly get out there some expensive and dramatic looking piece of jewellery unless they specifically wish to link it to Prince Charles who has a very fine eye and he has deliberately made something. I mean that is possible but doubtful. I wondered if the Princess of Wales might wear a tiara very associated with Queen Elizabeth as a sort of tribute. Well, the Princess of Wales is a bit of a disappointment about jewellery, isn't she? She gives the impression that she only puts it on when she absolutely has to. And I imagine her looking beautiful in one of those dresses or gowns, beautiful figure and walking down and then her sort of pulling a face and saying, do I have to wear this? I mean, I'm making all this up. It's probably ridiculous, but she doesn't give any sense of adoring jewellery and being pleased to put it on. Maybe she is, maybe she's a mother and really doesn't want to spend her time putting these things around her neck, but she certainly doesn't seem to have Camilla's joy at wearing jewellery. I think she likes contemporary designers. She goes to Kiki McDonough, like actually her, her late mother-in-law. I mean, I think she likes, you know, small contemporary pieces, it seems to me. Well, it's normal, isn't it, that because members of the royal family now have so much of a um, normal, I would say, way of living that um, if you meet your children from school, you're unlikely to want to put on a huge glittering piece of jewellery. It would be totally inappropriate and just plain ridiculous. So as the members of the royal family become more, as we all are, at least on the surface, presented in that way, even though we know that they're unlikely to have had to um, iron their frock before they come out for the day. But um, there is a feeling now that a lot of this jewellery does seem inappropriate in today's world. And the Queen Consort? It's going to be interesting to see if she wears the coronation necklace, because every Queen since Queen Victoria has worn the coronation necklace. Well, I think one would imagine that she will wear it. But Mm. if she wears something else, or if anybody wears something else, I'm sure there'll be an explanation. Because everything's different now. We don't just stand there gawping at the television or at the figures themselves. We ask questions. And so there'll definitely be answers, I imagine. More than any time ever, don't you think now people are, as you say, asking questions about jewellery that in the last sort of decade of the Queen's life, really, every time she appeared in a brooch or a necklace, there was a story about it and people were linking it to history in a way that I think people had slightly ignored before? Yes. I mean, we're told that it's going to be a smaller, shorter coronation. I mean, didn't the last one have 20,000 people um, involved in it? I mean, it was an enormous event. This, I think, for various reasons, which we all know, will be much more controlled. And they want above all else for there to be no problem of any sort. I mean, that's what we all want. But whether King Charles will play down the grandeur and the tiaras, I don't know. We'll see. I'm hoping that he'll bring in things that he loves. I'd like to see that um, the flowers that he has looked after all his life play a part in this very serious event. Um, And I think that he himself is somebody with... I'm sure he would want to play down the grandeur and the tiaras. It's not his type of thing. So I would think that he himself would have discouraged anybody from being too... Not frivolous exactly, but too showy. I I think maybe it'll be the immediate royal family wearing tiaras, but I think guests will be in hats and just sort of nice frocks, but not like the Queen's coronation when everyone was in the evening dress, 
full tiaras, coronation robes, ermine. I don't think that will happen. I think that everybody is so nervous now of what they should wear, what they shouldn't wear, what they should encourage people to wear otherwise. I think people want a show, but not one which is about money and extraordinary expense and overgrandisement, but just things of beauty. I think nobody's going to argue that beauty should be a significant part of this event. Do you have any recollection of the Queen's coronation? Were you too young to remember anything or what your family said about it? Oh, it was so sad. You know, (laughs) I was just too young to understand the pomp and ceremony of the crown. Um, We had no television. I lived down in Sussex. And um, it all seemed really very far away. It was part of a world which I hadn't really understood what it was yet. So I missed out on it. Isn't that sad? And now I've had to wait 70 years (laughs) to see it all. I know, because you just sort of read stories that everyone crowded into other people's houses to watch it on a small black and white television. And now you think people will watch it on the hoof on their telephones. It's going to be a very different event. It is going to be a different event. But I think that the death of Her Majesty made us realise how people wanted to keep their connection to the crown. I mean, those people who waited for 24 hours on the street and in the garden to play tribute to the Queen and her long reign. I don't think anyone would really have expected that. I don't know if it was planned, but it was something that hit the heart. And maybe we're going to find the same thing now. I think there'll still be people, or many more people, who are critical because we're going from one Queen who certainly proved her tremendous hard work and energy. And um, we're going through to a different family now and one that's been quite broken and remended. And I don't know how ordinary people, and by ordinary people, I don't mean people who uh, lead ordinary lives and therefore are furiously angry that there should be rich people who um, are part of the royal world. But I just mean, I don't know how many ordinary people will want to join in the celebrations and um, whether it will be a happy event. I hope it will be. I hope it will be people having small events in their own areas and um, then they can watch it all on their telephone. I wanted to say that your book, The Royal Jewels, is so packed full of so much information and not just about the jewellery, about the fashion, about how they lived at that moment, incredible detail that brings it all alive. How long did it take you to write, Susie? Um, It took me altogether about a year and a half. Um, to write the book. But of course, in a way, it was easier to write it than it was to get the information. Um, that was extraordinarily difficult, but not nearly as much as it would be now. I mean, I'm sure you would never be able to do it now. I think what I realised very much was how, you know, that line of it's yours and mine. This is the question. Do all these jewels really belong to us, the people of our country? And are they held in perpetuity while the kingdom at least continues? Or are they pieces which were given perhaps by members of the royal family to each other? There are so many different categories. And what is really complicated is to try and imagine what it was like to be a young royal in the 1930s, 40s, any of those eras when there was much more deference towards the royal family and certainly much more gifts offered and accepted. I don't think they were accepted in a way that somebody grabbed them and thought how much they were worth, but it was a sort of generous attitude that was accepted. I don't think you can really do that now. I I just, I suppose it still happens that somebody from another country comes to see Her Majesty and offer her something, but 
I can't imagine through the next 10, 20 years that we will see people coming in from distant countries and bowing and scraping and handing over a jewel. But we don't know. We don't know how the world changes. And I don't think that I am capable or nor is anybody else of knowing how things will go. And the book starts with Queen Victoria and it obviously goes through to Queen Mary, the Duchess of Windsor, the Queen Mother, the Queen, um, the late Princess of Wales. And I thought in tracking that fashion story and the jewellery, who do you think wore jewels with the greatest style out of all those women? Well, I think the Queen Mother really knew how she wanted to look. She wanted to be covered in jewels, she wanted to be sparkling, she wanted to be always smiling. And she was quite a large woman, but she somehow managed to get all the jewels all over her. So I count her as a very important one. I don't think really that the Queen herself had an instinct towards jewellery. It was almost as though she was wearing it, uh, what should I say, to do the right thing. We all feel, and maybe it's wrong, but we all get the feeling that she enjoyed more with no jewellery, climbing on a horse and going off into the fields than she did in dressing up. So different characters for different people within the royal family. Did they sometimes fight for things between them? That would be interesting. But I don't think we'll ever know because those are the kind of things that are private, very private. And although quite a large number of people might have seen if there were perhaps any little arguments then the staff would have seen it. But all that's behind us now. And I don't think there'll be many people who remember working for Princess Margaret, for example, and she loved jewellery. So I think that in a way it's an end of an era. But we'll see Mm -hmm. because Prince Charles certainly has got really a, a vision for beauty and it will be good to see what he can do to make the jewellery his own. Was there one piece that you wrote about that you thought, gosh, that's that would be the piece that I would want to wear? I think that everything that Princess Diana wore touched my heart. Of course, when they were photographed and when I wrote my book, we didn't know any of the backstory. We didn't know how desperately unhappy she was. We didn't know how she couldn't control her Um, eating and we didn't know anything about her she just seemed like this fairy-like woman and now when you go back and see the pictures and feel her hurt and her pain and her problems but at the same time her beauty I think that she above all else seems to tell a story with the jewellery that she wears and she looks so gorgeously glittering and behind it is a deep sadness I don't mean to be miserable about it but I think the jewellery can tell all sorts of stories and I if you went closely to all the members of the family I think you'd find that what they wear also tells you how they feel. There was a very it's just as amazing how in a way history repeats because in your book because I think when you talk about the Queen Consort and her love of jewellery. And as far as we understand, she's appeared um, over the years in new pieces that apparently the King has commissioned for her because he loves jewellery too. And he seemed to have been bequeathed quite a lot of stones, I think, from his grandmother, which he's made into jewellery for her. And in a way, that's um, sort of indicative of his future intentions, because in your book, you, you referred to the Duchess of Windsor and Edward VIII, and you quoted Sir Henry Chip's canon, 
who had had dinner with them, saying, Her collection of jewels is the talk of London. The king must give her new ones every day. He worships her. The king is insane about Wallace. Insane! Cartier resetting magnificent, indeed fabulous jewels for Wallace. And for what purpose, if she's not to be queen? Well, there's a lot of that is true. I don't believe that anybody except the man who fell in love with her believed that she was suitable to be queen or that she would become queen. But that certainly didn't put her off from um, taking jewellery. And it's very interesting because she had such a modern attitude. And I think that really it's interesting that both her and her partner obviously loved the idea of jewellery as something that was new and fresh. It wasn't, at least it seemed to me, for either of them, the importance of wearing something that had been worn by Queen Victoria X number of years ago. It was something that she loved particularly, but also he loved to see her wearing. So that was a love story for jewellery, and the rest of the love story we know. It was partly beautiful and partly sad. But it was quite interesting in the way that he was giving her so many gifts of jewels with his intention of wanting her to be his queen consort, in the same way that our present king has done with his queen consort. It's difficult to know, with so much hindsight, exactly how the future king, as he was at the beginning, felt about it. He never really in his life seemed to show a sign of of being wanting to be king or trying to be a king. And I don't know in terms of the jewellery, I would love to know whether they worked together, he and his partner, um, to do jewellery. Cartier um, did a lot of jewellery and um, what came along were jewels that had been given to the crown or had been grabbed by the crown, it might be said. But this um, kind of pieces of jewellery certainly came from somewhere because when you're talking about big stones, even back then they would have been enormous. And it looks as though the future king, as he was then, would go to Cartier or another jeweller and um, give the stones and have them made into something either elaborate or modern. But there was a connection there. But it's dubious. I think I've used that word before because whose right was it really to have these jewels? They were given from India by people who thought that this was a future king they were giving it to. And then when he left the kingdom in England, it's hard to see why he had the right to take the jewels with him. But these are things that I think people listening to this in their own families might have heard this story. It's something really that is the one of the oldest things in the world. He, he took my jewellery, she took my jewellery. We've heard it all before, haven't we? We've heard it before and it's very hard to prove, as you say. And it's very hard, you know, to say, oh, this particular emerald came from there. Because as you say, some of those jewels that he had commissioned by Cartier, the panther jewels that she became famous for, I mean, they are, those panthers are sitting on stones of about 150 carats. I mean, those are vast stones. You do quote a lovely story in the book about how much when talking about, you know, little scraps about jewellery, um, that Queen Mary didn't want, she loved them so much, she didn't really want to hand them on, and that Queen Alexandra only got the diadem that she, I think, George the Fourth diadem to wear, literally just in time for the coronation, because Queen Mary didn't really want to hand them on. Well, this is it, isn't it? They are all royal people, but they're also people. And um, we all know, is there a family that doesn't have somebody who wants to wear this or wanted that particular chair when the grandmother died. It's um, us and them. They have these extraordinary jewels, the like of which most of us would never, ever put round our necks or our waists or anywhere. And then the other side, 
they have this personal situation and the jewels in some cases must mean a lot to them. Maybe they were wearing it when they were, knew that they were pregnant with their second child. And just saying all these things because we have to remember that we are talking about this extraordinary history, history of jewellery, with a great story in about many of the pieces going back literally hundreds of years. And at the same time, we're speaking about a family, a family, the family. And their family, we have seen, is just like us. It's a very good point. And I wanted to talk a little bit, um, if I may, about your personal history with jewellery, because I remember when you were the editor of Vogue International at the time, you know, you were reporting for 26 editions of Vogue in 18 languages. And one day I was sitting at my desk in Vogue and, and you sidled up to the desk. I was looking at some, I had a jeweler in showing me something. And you said, oh, I'd really like to be a jewellery editor. And I wondered where that love of jewellery came to you and how it came to you. I think anyone who loves jewellery would say that it comes in the heart. It comes in the love of beautiful things. And, you know, the fact that I, I don't feel the same about watches. I mean, I've seen so many people, a lot of men, um, for example, but it doesn't personally lift my heart to see watches, however beautiful they are and whoever, however brilliant they are to work. So I just think that you feel these things. It's it's in your heart and soul. And for me, I'd always choose jewellery. But not above fashion. Well, jewellery is fashion. That's what people don't understand. And that's the thing that is slightly difficult in that it's the royal jewels have stayed just still without without changing at all for, what, 70 years. Can they be brought to life again because they were lively at the time that the new queen inherited it so long yes. ago? And uh, it's interesting. I consider that jewellery is part of fashion, and I always will feel like that. And when you look at how people dress, they obviously feel it too. What interests me, do you think that men, men are starting to wear jewellery a lot um, in the world of today? So maybe we'll see Prince Charles wearing lots of jewellery. Now that will be interesting. That would be, and I'd love him to wear the coronation necklace. That would be a statement. Um, if he's going to wear naval uniform, the coronation necklace around his neck, the crown, that would be fabulous. Clearly you should be in there. I think you should elbow your way into the palace. <laughs> <laughs> but Susie, do you think then, in what you said about how static the jewels have remained throughout Her Majesty's reign, and now we have a, a, a king, they'll remain static again. I mean, do, do you think it would be wrong that pieces were restyled or, or do you think just younger members have got to find a new way to wear it to make it seem fresh? Certainly the king's queen, the woman he married, loves jewellery and so she will definitely push forward for the changes. He himself, I think, is interested in the whole idea of things that are designed and so is likely to be interested. But it would be good to find out that each member perhaps the female members in the royal family, have an opportunity to have a piece of jewellery that has no great historic past, but is a beautiful piece or has wonderful stones to it, and have it modernised, and then it would perhaps be worn more by the next future queen. But um, we'll have to see. We are not in charge of this. And one thing I do think that we've been talking about before is that it's difficult for the royal family now. People see jewellery so much as money, as wealth, as being worth a great deal. And that's going to be the first question. So the new king wore this, that and the other clothing and, and they'll add, people will add some amazing 
piece of jewellery that is worn by the new king. And really it's not about that. It should be about beauty and symbolism and all sorts of things that aren't so much in fashion today. Thank you. I think that's a perfect way that we should look at it on the day of the coronation. Um, so thank you very much, Susie. Thank you for, for sharing that and your experiences of the Royal Jewels. It's been fun talking to you. And um, I'm like everybody else. I'm going to be glued to the television to try and see in detail and close up exactly what is being worn in the jewellery. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. Do subscribe to our podcast feed and leave us a rating and a comment. If you want to know more about our sponsors, they're on foolygemstones.com. And please join me again for the third part of our coronation special series Next week, just ahead of the coronation, I will be talking to the polymath, historian, author, Geoffrey Munn. And we'll be talking about his book, Tiaras, A History of Splendour. But more than that, he is going to talk us through the coronation regalia that will be used, the crown jewels, and how it all works. We will be speaking from the Queen Mary room at Garrard, and bear in mind that the Queen Consort will be wearing Queen Mary's crown. So there's lots to discuss. Please join us then. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan. Music and editing by Tim Thornton. Graphics by Scott Bentley. Illustration by Geordie Labanda. And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. Thank you.